Welcome to Cancer Conference Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. On this program, five clinical investigators review key papers from the American Society of Hematology meeting held in December in New Orleans. To begin, I met with Dr. Rafael Fonseca to chat about ash papers on multiple myeloma, and he began by commenting on two presentations looking at a critical question in upfront management of this disease, the potential role of the next-generation proteasome inhibitor carfilzomib in a combination induction regimen. The first one presented by Dr. Cordy from the NIH presents data on the combination of carfilzomib and alitomide and dexamethasone what we call the KRD regimen now. And it's a very, very elegant study. I think the investigators are to be commended not only because of the study results and the quality of the data, but also the correlative science that was associated with the study really made us learn quite a bit more than we would from your standard phase two clinical trials. So, you know, they essentially went through the phase one, phase two, and at this juncture present the phase two data on 45 patients who are treated with this particular combination. So patients are treated with a combination of carfilzomib, lenalidomide, and dex, but very much in a similar fashion as was done previously by Andrew Jakubowiak. And then they introduced a number of correlative studies, as I mentioned, include bone marrow, include baseline gene expression, as well as day two gene expression, and flow cytometry and gene sequencing for looking at depth of response. Their primary objective is reported as being greater than or equal to grade three neuropathy, as well as some of the correlative work and then the clinical responses observed in this patient population. The summary is that this is a very active regimen. So this is consistent with what we knew already from the paper from Andrew Jakubowiak, that this is a very active regimen. And predominantly what they're trying to focus on here is very deep responses. So when you look at patients who can go through eight cycles and are assessed for response at that point, the group that achieves a near CR, a CR, a stringent CR is 67%. So Two out of three patients get into some sort of an objectified CR category, which is really impressive. I mean, this goes in line with other similar studies, such as, for instance, VRD. Some of the results as well, too, with combinations with the cyclophosphamide that we'll talk more about. But it sort of sets the stage for what the majority of the people are thinking in the field is that as your first intention, getting a very deep response with induction of myeloma seems to be an important goal and sets the patient up for the potential for even better outcomes post-transplant. Now, I say the potential because this studies obviously raise a question, you know, is there a future where there is no transplant as part of induction treatment for myeloma? And that's a fair question. It's not asked specifically by the studies. But if this patient is going to get a transplant at some point, then the data suggests that for the transplant, the quality of the response pre-transplant matters. The Spanish study has suggested that the quality of responses translates into long-term survival, durability of the disease, and cure of myeloma patients. So, so again, this is very exciting. They showed MRD negativity that the majority of the patients who reach one of the CR categories as well, too, have MRD negative disease. And certainly provide the context to ask the question, well, as we move into the future, the treatment of myeloma needs to still be based on the clinical parameters that we measure but perhaps it's time that we incorporate some of those biomarkers earlier on to better gauge what kind of progress we're making as we treat the disease. So this was, of course, very, very interesting. And just to complete, perhaps before we do some of the discussion, is a similar study that was presented by the Italian study. Dr. Bringen is the first author, is a group from Antonio Palombo, looking at the similar question, except that now lenalidomide is substituted for cyclophosphamide. 
one of the rationales for doing this is that there's a high rate of discontinuation of treatment for myeloma in the elderly because of toxicity. So they wanted to know whether this regimen, which has been reported in similar combinations to be well-tolerated, could actually be effectively used without a high rate of discontinuation. So this is kind of the carfilzomib version of Cyborg-D? This is a carfilzomib version of Cyborg-D, exactly. And in their eligibility criteria, they focus on symptomatic newly diagnosed patients who are over the age of 65. So that's very important, or that they're ineligible for other reasons for stem cell transplant. And again, they show a very, very high rate of response. Carfilzomib is administered on days 1, 2, 8, 9, 15, and 16. And the cyclophosphamide was provided, pretty standard doses. This was 300 milligrams per meter square. And then the patients also got the weekly dexamethasone. If you look at their outcomes, so you look at uh, near CR or better for the induction phase, and this induction phase was up to nine months, they got up to 47%. And then patients could go on to carfilzomib maintenance, and, you know, at 18 cycles, this went up to 56%. They report, of course, although it's early on and it's a small group to perhaps delve too much in the details, but, you know, the results with progression-free and overall survival being quite favorable with a two-year overall survival of 87%. Just like the CORDA study, they actually report that the quality of the response matters and overall survival, for instance, seems to be favored, although it's not significant at this point for those patients who achieve astringent CR. The study was very interesting, too, because they actually achieved a discontinuation rate of 14%, which, of course, we would want all of our patients to be able to continue on therapy, but that's similar to what has been reported, for instance, with RD, and it's clearly inferior to what is being reported with combinations that include melphalan. So similar lessons here, depth of response matters, the regimen is well tolerated, and I'm sure we'll see more of the studies coming to the future. For folks in the community, it's important to remember carfilzomib is only to be used right now in the relapse and refractory setting. That's what we do in our clinical practice in our center. But I think the studies are paving the way for a future with carfilzomib being incorporated into frontline therapy. So a couple of questions. Globally, did these two studies add anything in terms of understanding better toxicities? And I don't see that much in their slides about cardiovascular and respiratory toxicity, which I'm still kind of trying to figure out in my own mind. They had like a few cases that they don't really talk too much about it. Where do we stand right now in understanding what the risk is there? You know, that's an excellent question, Neil. They really don't go into the detail of that here, and it's something we need to understand better. I think people are understanding that there's a component of this that has to do with the previous form of administration as well as hydration, but also we need to continue to tease out whether there's some specific toxicity, either coronary as well as the possibility of failure associated with this. That was really not addressed in this clinical trials. I think as the treatments get better, the responses get deeper then there should be a greater emphasis as well on safety because as we look at all of these combinations and we're looking at patients who are going to be surviving 5, 10 years, 15 years, the long-term implications for a severe toxicity are quite important. And I would venture out to say that if these studies go on to become phase 3 tested, they would really have to show a significant level of safety given that there's multiple alternatives. But nevertheless, they remain as a very, very exciting possibility for the future. Right now, in terms of the way you look at this in the relapse refractory setting, of course, it's a little bit different overall clinically, but do you have any concerns or thoughts about cardiovascular toxicity? And in a patient with a cardiac history, 
Do you think twice about Garfield's move? You know, it's a great question, and all the answers are relatively subjective. Actually, we were having an email exchange about this yesterday with my colleagues. Some of them have seen examples of toxicities that clearly suggest there might be a link. We will soon have data from a phase three clinical trial where patients will be treated with and without carfilzomib, the SPIRE trial, and I think that needs to be reported there as well too, and that would give us some clarity because at this point, a lot of what we have is certainly opinion and potentially concern from certain individuals. I really would not want to make judgment on that given the lack of this large clinical trial data specifically for something like this. I haven't seen much in my practice other than the fluid overload, but that doesn't really mean there's nothing to be concerned about. And some of the data is being collected, some of the post-marketing data, but I'd rather rely on what we will learn soon from the phase three clinical trials. For practical purposes, though, for example, are you getting ejection fractions in patients starting carfilzomib? We are not. But as you know, a lot of our patients now are being measured BMPs and the like. And so we get calls. Okay, what do we do if the patient has an abnormal BMP? And that, again, still remains a bit in the art of medicine. We're trying to make individual determinations. But I really fall short of having some blanket statements on how to go about this for the doctors in the community, other than just following common sense. If you have a patient who has severely decompensated cardiac disease, I guess one might want to be extra careful in that particular patient or a patient who has a picture reminiscent of severe coronary artery disease. On the other hand, merely abnormal markers without symptoms would clearly not sway me away from treating the patient if indeed carfilzomib was an indicated next line of therapy. So one final question. I think it's pretty clear from everything that's out on carfilzomib, including these two studies, that you certainly do not see very much peripheral neuropathy. Correct. It seems to be relatively safe. It'd be hard to believe that it would be significantly less efficacious than bortezomib-containing regimens. I mean, do we really need phase three studies in this kind of situation? That's an excellent question. I've been a very strong proponent that there's situations where we don't need phase three clinical trials. So I'll use the example of pomalidomide, which we're going to talk a little bit more. I don't think pomalidomide really needed a phase three to be approved. Now, whether there is enough compelling data at this point to say, well, we know that carfilzomib is ready for prime time and we should be pushing for this being used up front. I think it's still very much a matter of opinion. You're going to find certain elements in the community who will be very vocal proponents for this. But I would find very reasonable voices saying, listen, we have a regimen that is much better tolerated now with subcutaneous and weekly administration of the drug. And in fact, you know, at some point in the future, soon to be cheaper as well, too. So I think all of those factors are going to play into how we choose for this regimen. Now, if you take exclusively patient safety, one might say, well, you know, we have two studies plus the Jakubowiak study that show that peripheral neuropathy is not an issue. You know, why don't we do this just on those grounds alone, given that they have comparable response rates? I think if we did a large phase three randomized trial, which, you know, hasn't been done yet, it's something that may shed some light, but I would imagine that the responses are going to be quite similar. And if there are any differences, they're not going to be of such magnitude that is necessarily going to be practice changing. Of course, that's just, you know, prediction, don't have that data. But it's a tough question. I don't have the right answer. The other thing is, I mean, am I correct in saying that there's really no phase three of RVD? That's correct. That is correct. So there's ongoing phase three clinical trials. And that question is always tricky because you also have to get into the nuances because even though there might be phase threes, the question is phase three comparing RVD to what? So we know, of course, we're going to have that to the transplant. And for instance, we have a phase three for RD, but really the question in the RD was RD low versus high dose dexamethasone. So it's a specific question that's been addressed in the phase three. 
And of course, as we like the topics, we like the regimens, we may shield behind the whole thing of saying, well, we have a phase three, or we may sort of discredit something else by saying there's not phase three clinical trial data. But I think that gets to be really, really nuanced. I think we know that these are safe regimens. If in a world where we didn't have issues with the insurance coverage, I think a lot of people would be willing to use carfilzomib as frontline therapy. So I'm curious about your thoughts, you know, talking about sub-Q bortezomib, but we're also looking at the possibility of an oral proteasome inhibitor at ASH. Paul Richardson presented more data looking at the oral agent exazabib, MLN9708, combined with lenalidomide and dexamethasone, kind of the RBD, but with the oral proteasome inhibitor. Right. And actually, I was just going to bring it into our previous conversation because it really threads naturally into that. The challenge that carfilzomib still has and needs to be solved and hopefully will be solved soon right now is a convenience for the schedule. On the other end of the spectrum, we have the study of exazomib. So 9708, which is exazomib citrate, it gets hydrolyzed to 2238, which is a exazomib molecule. Well, it's been proven to have evidence of anti-tumor activity in myeloma, and obviously you get the best feel for comparison when you do this also in patients who have newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. And that's a study that was presented here by Paul Richardson and colleagues for this particular combination. So this is the oral RVV. And needless to say, this is very convenient. This is something that if it has similar efficacy, I don't necessarily think that this needs to be better in efficacy, but if it has similar efficacy and it would have a good toxicity profile, could easily displace other regimens because of the fact that we can treat patients completely on an oral basis. A lot of issues, of course, behind that with regards to oral parity and coverage for oral medications. That notwithstanding, this is a very convenient regimen. It's one that could be used at multiple age groups. So they treated patients with uh, exasomib. Exasomib was provided on days 1, 4, 8, and 11. So it was twice per week. And this is important to note because similar parallel studies where this has been used on a weekly basis, exasomib, have shown significant lower rate of peripheral neuropathy. But this study in and of itself is important if we focus on the response because it provides response rates that are pretty similar to what you see with some of the other triplets up front. And we'll go more into the details about this. Patients were treated with lenalidomide on 25 milligrams on days 1 through 14, and then they got dexamethasone on days 1, 2, 4, 5, 8, 9, and 11, and 12. At the recommended phase 2 dose, 57 patients were treated, and baseline distribution for those patients was quite what you would expect in this particular patient population. So patients could also have stem cell mobilization. Obviously, there's potential transplant candidates in this cohort. But when you look at the preliminary response data, so at the recommended phase to those, there's 56 patients, the overall response rate was 95%. Now, when we start making differences between VGPR, NCR, CR, and stringent CR, that's where our discussion is going to be over the next several years. So in this particular case, if you join CR plus very good PR, you have a 75% response rate. That's 42 out of 53 patients. If you look at CR, it's 27, stringent CR is 21 out of those 27, and another nine, a near CR. And then there's for VGPR, of course, that's 48% of patients. So one potentially could argue, and I don't think it really would be a fair thing, but one could potentially argue saying, well, I want to look at depth of response. I'd like to have the CR category be higher. There's slight enrichment for the VGPR. I think in this clinical trials, it's hard to try to make those comparisons. I would just say that VGPR are better of 75%. It's a pretty impressive response rate for this age group. And again, this is something that could be used across the board 
So one could envision that the future of myeloma, instead of starting with that upfront dichotomy of transplant versus not, and assuming that transplant plays a role in the future, could go with a triplet like this that is oral. You start, as the patient gets better, then you reassess whether they're transplant candidates and the patient's willingness to be transplant candidates. And then there's a separation down the line, be that at four, eight cycles, perhaps two years, where some patients will go on to transplant, some patients will continue with some form of maintenance. So this is, of course, interesting. And just like was done in the CORDA study, they started looking at MRD. And for the most part, patients who achieve one of the stringent CRs or CRs, in this particular case of the patients in that category, 12 patients, nine of them are MRD negative. One was unevaluable and two patients were positive. So there's a small subset of patients that still has evidence of a clone there in the background, patients for which obviously we need to be mindful of for potential recurrence. All grades, peripheral neuropathy was reported in 30 out of 57 patients, so it came out at 53%. Again, this is something that is best assessed with the weekly administration where the rate is lower. But the take-home message that I have from this is that, in fact, oral protosomes will be soon around the corner in clinical practice. Now, this is important, as I mentioned, for the practicalities of treating myeloma patients overall. One looks at the CR data. The majority of patients are not transplant candidates patients that may have a hard time getting to their treatment center. But this will be also very important in the setting of long duration of therapy, for instance, in scenarios like maintenance. So I guess I would say this is a thumbs up study, and I'm happy with the results that were presented there. Are you uh, using proteasome inhibitors, specifically bortezomib, right now as maintenance? I've heard people talk about doing that in higher risk patients. We are. And with the limitations of the data for my patients, that go to transplant who before transplant then you had high-risk disease, I do encourage them to have some form of a maintenance post-transplant. So I'll give you an example. A patient in the community who was being treated for myeloma was referred to our center for transplant evaluation. And the patient is very healthy, active, but he has a 414 and 17. The person is getting RVD induction, and this person will undergo a stem cell transplant. And my discussion with the patient was that risk stratification, one of the major uses right now that we have is the post-transplant period. And that patient, I have made the recommendation that we continue with some form of an RVD or an RVD-like regimen as soon as he recovers from the procedure. There are a couple of papers about, you mentioned pomalidomide that I wanted to ask you about. One, 690, looking at the logical combination of pomalidomide and carfilzomib with dexamethasone. And then also some more data in abstract 408, the final analysis of the paper, I guess it was presented last year, the phase three study, pomalidomide and low-dose dex versus high-dose dex. Sure. Well, this is interesting data because we're seeing patients in our clinics who have been exposed to all the active agents, and they come for a second opinion, and there's a lot of empirical recommendations that are being made. And I'm happy to know at least we have some data that supports what it's being done. There's this, I would call it community knowledge or sort of culture now that if something fails, you can combine it and sometimes you'll get responses. And there's multiple anecdotes for that. More often than not, the responses are short-lived and certainly not all patients respond. So what about combining the two most recent agents, pomalidomide and carfilzomib for these patients? Now, this study is important because as stated, patients had to be refractory to pyrolinolidomide and had to be relapsed or refractory to their most recent therapy. And of course, these patients in the phase two had to be both pomalidomide and carfilzomib naive. Now for background, we know that pomalidomide can help patients who are lenalidomide 
refractory, although of course the number is lower than if the patient is lenalidomide naive, and carfilzomib can help patients that are bortezomib refractory, again the number being lower than if you just treat with carfilzomib patients who haven't been exposed to bortezomib. Patients were treated with pomalidomide days 1 through 21, and then they received the carfilzomib on the standard schedule and weekly dexamethasone. And what they were trying to do essentially is just report the response rate on this patient population. The patient characteristics, I won't go much into the details, suffice it to say they were representative of a patient cohort in this stage. They had to receive a median of five cycles, so this is not really early in relapse. These are patients in general who had to receive various lines of therapy. And the response assessment was available in 67% of patients, and they show one CR, 18 very good partial responses, 24 partial responses, and 11 minor responses. So the overall response rate, that excluding MRs, of course, 64%, and greater or equal to MR was 81%. So I guess the short answer is when one is in a bind and nothing else is working, this is a fair thing to do. The toxicities are the combination of both, but I guess it's probably every other abstract that we see in the ASH meetings is toxicity will be manageable, et cetera. But I would say that this is objective data to support the idea of combining these drugs as patients have exhausted some of the standard possibilities. Number one. Number two is pomalidomide is a very active agent in myeloma, and certainly there's still further possibility of moving pomalidomide further up front in the overall strategy for the treatment of myeloma. And since we were previously talking about carfilzomib doing that as well, I think in the context of other clinical trials, this could be done. Of course, there's a lot of logistic complications of why this would be a good idea or not, but I think I was really encouraged to see the response rates that were reported. In a similar study, maybe I should make a pause there because the other ones are going to be single agent. So, What about the two papers looking at pomalidomide alone? The two papers also very interesting is MM003. And then the paper that was presented by Xavier Zelalieu from France looking at the combination of pomalidomide as treatment for patients who have relapse and refractory disease in combination with low dose of dexamethasone. Both of the studies try to ask the question of whether cytogenetics matter and what's the effect of high-risk cytogenetic markers in this patient population. And it's a very important question, but before delving into details, I think some general comments are important regarding risk stratifications in relapse and refractory myeloma. Patients who have a high-risk genetic marker but who are able to receive a fifth or a sixth line of therapy are patients who, by definition, will have the less bad, if you may, of the high-risk genetic subtypes. And that's just proven by the fact that these patients have been able to respond to four, five, or six prior lines of therapy. So I do take the results of high-risk genetic markers down the line with a bit of a grain of salt. It is gratifying to know that in a patient population where you have high-risk markers, you can improve their outcomes, and some of the studies do show perhaps that there might be a little bit of benefit. But the reality is I think the validity of high-risk markers is greater when you're using that in the upfront setting. And if you take the pessimistic perspective, is that both of the studies show that even in the relapse and refractory setting, where you don't see necessarily the beneficial effects, overall, high-risk genetic markers do continue to carry weight in long-term outcomes from patients. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. I would take this with a grain of salt. I would be cautious about over-interpreting the studies. I think the studies, one, show that pomalidomide, particularly in combination with examethasone, which came out of the OO3 study, is still active in patients with multiple myeloma as opposed to the examethasone. 
And if you actually, if you look at the Demopoulos study, if you do the comparison between standard risk and high risk, you see that the response rate is truly higher in patients who have standard risk cytogenetics. I think mostly it was affirmation, a further affirmation of the value of pomalotomide and relapsed refractory myeloma patients. Our impression has been that pomalotomide is very well tolerated, and in particular, the peripheral neuropathy is really not much of an issue, certainly not what we saw previously with thalidomide, which subsequently changed dramatically when lenalidomide came on board. So I guess for all practical purposes, I consider pomalotomide an equivalent to lenalidomide. Very important, of course, to still remember the aspect of thromboprophylaxis for patients. But overall, I would say it's a well-tolerated drug, and one can think of as a very similar molecule as what you would see with lenalidomide. So I'd like your thoughts on the plenary presentation looking at RD. So the plenary presentation from the European group really did show that lenalidomide and dexamethasone, known for the acronym RD, should be the standard of care for elderly patients. Now, this was a very important study because of policy issues and dictating what's going to be done, mostly in European countries. I'd say that a lot of the American oncologists are already using that regimen, and it's very clear that the use of melphalan is going down the wayside for a number of reasons, including lower efficacy and the potential for that contributing as well to secondary malignancies. And the simplicity of the oral regimen really trumps everything else. So now this clinical trial shows the objective data from the survival data favoring RD, which really just makes it very compelling for anyone who's treating elderly patients who are not candidates for transplant with this particular regimen. We have incorporated that already over the years, of course, in our recommendations from MSMART. The caveat to that is if you have a patient who's not a transplant candidate but has high-risk disease, one really should include in one way or another a protosome inhibitor up front. But this study really cemented the notion that we're going to be moving away from melphalan-containing combinations. To be frank with you, that has been my opinion as well, too, for some time, given the results, for instance, of MM015, which showed good data. I guess we learned from the 15, which was lenalidomide, melphalan, and prednisone limited, followed by maintenance, that maintenance was effective, but the toxicity of the melphalan combination was quite high. And I think we're just going to be completely moving away from that as frontline therapy. I don't know essentially what the role will be for melphalan actually in the future, whether one would even consider it in the setting of relapse and refractory myeloma, but I suspect it's going to be less and less. So two other papers relating to the issue of lenalidomide maintenance. We saw more data from the IFM trial, and then we saw sort of this meta-analysis that really had a lot of data from the three big trials that are out there. Can you talk about what was presented and where you see things today in terms of lenalidomide maintenance? Yeah, the maintenance issue is still very much at the forefront of what we do, and I think will be probably for the next 10 years. The data that was presented, the update from the French group, not showing evidence of improvements in overall survival, the main analysis sort of pointing in the other direction. I think in my mind, and this is only my opinion because we don't have the long-term follow-up, that with time, maintenance will be proven to be effective in general for myeloma. And the caveat would be that that in general is really not good enough. We have to start looking at the subgroups of patients. There is some data, of course, as we discussed before. If you first stratify by high risk, most patients with high-risk disease should get maintenance, but not with lenalidomide alone. And perhaps they might not even need lenalidomide, but I would say something like RBD would be good, if not certainly a protosome inhibitor, and that's supported by the European trials. 
For the patients who don't have high-risk disease, a few years back, we used to stratify based on tumor burden. And the logic was that the greater the tumor burden, the more sense it made. Well, it turns out that some of these trials for maintenance show that perhaps some of the best effect is seen in patients who have low tumor burden. So question number one is, can we select based on tumor burden alone? And the answer is, we really have conflicting sort of bits of information and logic on how one goes about making this particular recommendation. The second one, of course, is duration of therapy. I mean, if you look across the board in oncology, almost every single disease, we're seeing that longer duration of therapy is better. We've seen that in lung cancer. The data now it's coming out in breast cancer. And it just makes sense that you do have a long-term risk with small clones of cells ultimately emerging from the suppressive effect of therapy. So whether we should do two years versus five years versus sort of an indefinite fashion is still a question up for debate. I actually get down to all those details with my patients as we discuss the post-transplant setting in those who are standard risk disease. And I do bring patient preference also into the discussion. I think, I'm not necessarily, I try to use the right word, I think in time, maintenance will prove to be beneficial for many patients, perhaps a good subset of the standard risk when it comes down to lenalidomide, but it's hard to be quite dogmatic about this right now. So one thing I was curious about in terms of your thoughts, and that was, I believe there are three major phase three randomized trials in lens maintenance. The French study, which again, they presented data. They're the only one of the three not showing a survival benefit. You have the USCLGB trial and the Italian study that both showed a survival benefit. But one thing I wasn't aware of was that in the French study, they actually got in the non-maintenance arm consolidation. I think it was for a couple of months with lenalidomide after transplant. And then they also stopped treatment at two years, whereas the other studies kept going until progression. Do you think this is the reason they didn't see a survival benefit? I mean, it could be. And that has been discussed by our group as well, too, as to how the specific study design matters. And also the interesting part is that the likelihood that someone would get a similar therapy down the line. I think that's now different because lenalidomide is widely available. But all of that is probably just speculation at this point. You know, we don't really know for sure. We've seen that patients who are treated with lenalidomide, for instance, up front, be that in the setting of RD or the setting of studies such as the BIRD study from Dr. Nizvisky, you know, over time, it seems to make sense to keep them going on treatment. And the question is, why is that so fundamentally different in the setting of some residual disease post-transplant? For patients that I treat up front with lenalidomide, I actually continue them indefinitely until the time that either they can't tolerate the medication anymore or they have evidence of disease progression. And with that strategy, and I know this is not unique to us, other centers have shown as well too, Patients going out to eight and 10 years when they have active disease upfront. So clearly the only factor that has interfered in clonal control has been long-term administration of lenalidomide. So uh, of course, there's a lot of interest in daratumumab, an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody. But at ASH, we saw some data on another one, SAR650984. What about monoclonal antibodies in this one in particular? So very exciting data presented as well, too, on anti-CD38 monoclonal antibodies. We know from daratumumab that there's uh, proof of principle from the Scandinavian study that was presented at the ASCO of last year. Now we see here this new compound. is a naked humanized IgG1 monoclonal antibody, which was tested in the phase one clinical trial. The objective, of course, is to determine maximum tolerated dose and 
because of some of the limitations for preclinical development, a lot of this went from very low doses and took some time to escalate doses to what were thought to be clinically meaningful. And of course, wanted to look at secondary objectives that include among them, of course, disease response, because we already know that scene with aratumumab. This, as any biologic, of course, one has to monitor carefully for infusional reactions. This was given as infusion once a week or every two weeks. There were two options for patients with specific CD38 positive hematologic malignancies. And then what were presented here as well to the results that have been developed for patients with lymphoma, CLL, and 27 patients with multiple myeloma. As a reminder, I think it's important to note that C38, while it's expressed in a number of hematologic malignancies, is really a prime target in myeloma because essentially all myeloma patients express C38, even though you know in the literature you'll find ranges of 80 to 100%. Really, the majority of myeloma patients have C38 expression. In fact, it's part of our standard clinical measurement for the disease when people do flow cytometry. So in this particular clinical trial, 39 patients were treated and then there were 34 myeloma patients. A median number of prior therapies for them was six with a range of two to 14. When one goes towards the dosing and what prior regimens you know, had been used at early on at 0.3 milligrams per kilogram, all patients had received lenalidomide and bortezomib. And then as we get higher up at 10 milligrams or greater, about two thirds of patients had received carfilzomib and pomalidomide. The drug is actually very well tolerated, and in general, infusional reactions were not a major limitation for further conduct of the clinical trial. Now, I don't think it will be a problem for further development of the drug. Again, in about half of patients, and there's clear evidence of anti-tumor response, so half of patients or so had a reduction in their monoclonal protein. And again, this is difficult to completely measure right now because of this escalation in the phase one portion. If you look at patients only who got 10 milligrams or greater, the overall response rate is reported as 30%, and the clinical benefit response, including minor responses, goes up to 38%, close to 40%. So this is, again, objective evidence of a monoclonal having direct anti-myeloma effect. And I'd venture to say this probably is one of the most interesting and important molecules for future myeloma therapy because of a number of reasons. Obviously, it's a completely different class of drug. It's a biologic that it's associated with an immune response to the myeloma cells. But it also has the potential, which we've discussed at multiple groups, that if you actually add uh, things such as monoclonals, perhaps that would help us as well too with high-risk disease, given that it's not necessarily associated with intrinsic biology of the nucleus. So I'm thinking that this is gonna move quite fast in development. It's gonna move through other phase two and phase three clinical trials. It clearly needs to be tested up front because this may be the path to have finally something like a myeloma arch up. So let's finish out with Waldenstrom's. There were a couple of papers there I wanted to ask you about. One, 757, looking at carfilzomib, rituximab, and dexamethasone. And another looking at something we've been hearing lots about in B-cell cancers and CLL, the Bruton's kyrosine kinase inhibitor, Ibrutinib. So carfilzomib, rituximab, and dexamethasone was presented also as a combination by the group from Dr. Trion from the Dana-Farber as a way to use protosome inhibitors in patients with Waldenstrom's. This is a very relevant question because the thought has been that while bortezomib is very active in Waldenstrom's, particularly in combination, it is limited perhaps more so than in myeloma because of peripheral neuropathy. 
In general, the monoclonal proteins, IgM monoclonal proteins, have been associated with a greater rate of peripheral neuropathy baseline. So the addition of neurotoxic agents is obviously problematic. And given the experience with carfilzomib in the setting of myeloma patients, this is something that is exciting. Rituximab, of course, is positioned as part of the standard therapy for Waldenstrom's, as well as dexamethasone, which is commonly used in combination. So this is putting three really good players together as treatment for these patients. The patients obviously had to have symptomatic disease, and the treatment was given as follows. They were given six induction cycles, and then they were provided with maintenance. This was given every eight weeks for eight cycles and was consisting of carfilzomib, dexamethasone, and rituximab. Because of the possibility of a flare, and this has been previously reported, of course, with rituximab single agent, patients who had a significant elevation of the IgM, so this was defined at greater than 4,000, which is this important in the community because these patients can be tipped into hyperviscosity if they receive rituximab. So these patients underwent plasma phrases, and they were given the usual prophylaxis, which again, I'll make a practical point for folks in the community. Patients were all given a cyclure. And we say this over and over again, but acyclovir is important in patients who get protosome inhibitors because of the very significant risk that exists for herpes zoster associated with administration of these drugs. They use a response criteria that is used by the International WM Working Group. And what they were able to see is 81% response rate. So there's one patient who had a complete response, eight very good partial responses, 12 PRs, and four minor responses. And the patients seem to be tolerating well the combination, the time to response is very typical to what's seen in Waldenstrom's clinical trials, a little bit slower than what you see in myeloma, is 2.1 months. But there were no grade 2 or greater peripheral neuropathy, which is very important. Again, this is a patient population that is very sensitive to any neurotoxic effect of drugs. So again, as carfilzomib continues to be positioned in the various stages of the treatment for myeloma, Waldenstrom is a natural extension of this. The problem that plays Waldenstrom is that it's a rare enough disease that almost no one runs clinical trials for registration for these drugs. So they've always had to work around things such as insurance coverage and the like, because essentially almost everything that is done in Waldenstrom or everything that's done in Waldenstrom pretty much is done as an off-label. So I think there's perhaps more freedom, but there's also greater challenges in how one integrates some of these new drugs for the treatment of patients with this disease. What about other agents in Waldenstrom's, particularly the Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitor just approved in CLL, a Brutinib? This is truly bench to bedside. As we know, the group from the Dana-Farber using genome sequencing described this mutation, MYD88, in virtually all patients with Waldenstrom's. And obviously, the availability of the Brutinib, the BTK, makes sense because it's associated with the pathway and it's well tolerated. It's something that I presume we'll be using more and more in various hemolignancies, particularly as we heard some of the news of what's going on with CLDL, mantle cell lymphoma, etc. So the question was very, very relevant for Waldenstrom's. And the experience has been, again, in other disease stages that it's a good tolerated molecule. They reported on 63 patients, of which 17 were considered as having refractory disease. And essentially what they showed is that patients actually had a significant evidence of anti-tumor activity from the ibrutinib. So with a reported median follow-up of six cycles, this was 2 to 15, the overall response rate, the best overall response rate was 81%. 
So this is, again, I'm running out of adjectives, but it's clear data that this drug will be effective in Waldenstrom's deep responses, four very good partial responses, 32 partial responses. So if you only look at PR or better, it was 57% of patients. These are kind of like lymphoma kind of numbers. This is what we're seeing in CLL and particularly in CLL, but also in certain lymphomas, just really major benefits and not a whole lot of toxicity. That is very true. And I think this could very quickly displace most, potentially in time, all of the treatments that we use as frontline for Waldenstrom's because there's high level of activity, there's convenience, and seems to be very manageable with regards to toxicity. So I think this study will be seminal in that it will prove that this was a good thing to pursue in Waldenstrom's. Obviously, it has been tested more in the relapse and refractory setting, but with this toxicity profile and tolerability, I think studies for larger populations of upfront patients are clearly needed. 